Section twenty four of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Elizabeth of England. Part three. The climax of Elizabeth's danger soon came. It was a narrow escape from violent death, and illustrates the truth everywhere suggested by the pages of history, namely that the course of human events is daily changed or nearly changed by slight circumstances. The artful gardener, chief minister of state to Mary, had been gained over to the Spanish interest, and had persistently sought the princess's death the queen was taken ill alarmed probably at his own fate if elizabeth mounted the throne he sent a privy council order to the tower for her instant execution the lieutenant of the tower observed that the queen's signature was not appended to the warrant and had the good sense to send a messenger to her inquiring her will had he been more swayed by the influence of gardiner he might have thought the sovereign too ill to sign a document approved by her and legally drawn. Elizabeth might have perished, leaving a sadly romantic fame only second to Lady Jane Grey's, and Mary, Queen of Scots, might have sat on the English throne, carried out the designs of the English Mary, and further established popery in a land where no strong Scottish relish for endless secessions would have hindered the still papistic tendencies of a nation too aristocratic to care for other than a formal state religion. The Queen was aroused by this attempt on her sister's life. She sent Sir Henry Bedingfield, an honest and fearless man, with a hundred men of the Royal Guard, to take command of the Tower until she could transfer the princess to a safer place, far from the intrigues of court. She had already given up the idea of prosecuting her any further, and had begun to speak of her again by the endearing title of sister. She had refused, too, a Spanish proposal to send her to some continental court, an event that would have led to Elizabeth's ruin. At length it was resolved to remove her in the custody of Bedingfield to Woodstock, a royal residence fifty miles west of London. Elizabeth, apprehending that any hour might seal her fate, had been suddenly frightened at the first coming of Bedingfield, with his hundred men in blue uniform. As they rode into the castle she turned pale and hastily asked her attendants whether Lady Jane's scaffold had been taken away. When she learned that she was to be conducted to Woodstock, her terror took a new form. She inquired whether the knight were a person who made conscience of murder. She knew too well that prisoners who could not be legally executed were sometimes exposed on the highways to a concerted attack but her fears were allayed by the reputation of her staunch new keeper. She went by boat to Richmond, near London. 
there the queen was sojourning with her court and with her she had an interview which resulted in nothing but a renewal of the former effort to induce elizabeth to marry philibert prince of piedmont and most intimate friend of philip of spain as often before she asserted her determination to remain single and to intimidate her into the measure her servants were all taken from her this deed again made her anxious for her life this night i think i must die she said her servants wept as they left her as if they had looked upon her for the last time but lord tame one of her guards assured her that he would protect her when she was about to cross the thames the next morning her servants came to look another final farewell go to them she said to a gentleman and tell them from me tanquam ovis like a sheep to the slaughter for so am i led no one except her keepers was allowed to have the least communication with her noailles the detestable french ambassador who had all along laboured to destroy her sent to her a present of apples on her way a plan to cast upon her more of the odium of french friendship the people of england who were mostly protestant and admired her made sincerer demonstrations of sympathy wherever she passed they crowded near and greeted her with prayers acclamations and tears though rudely thrust back and denounced as rebels by the soldiers in some of the villages a joyful peal of bells announced her arrival but beddingfield who was both her honest protector and suspicious master silenced the bells and put the ringers in the stocks the other guardian lord tame was bold enough to cheer her with a rich feast and invited company while the party rested at his country seat he said let what would befall her grace should be merry in his house so much chivalry and noble feeling existed even in those bloody days at this entertainment she was not permitted to see the conclusion of a game of chess lest some covert plan of delay were intended and while continuing the journey she was for the same reason forbidden to take shelter from a severe storm in a house by the wayside at the palace of woodstock she was uncomfortably lodged in the gatehouse and treated with much harshness on her window she wrote these words with a diamond much suspected of me nothing proved can be quoth elizabeth prisoner on a shutter with a bit of charcoal it is said that she inscribed these pathetic lines composed by herself o fortune how thy restless wavering state hath fraught with cares my troubled wit witness this present prison whither fate could bear me and the joys i quit thou caused the guilty to be loosed from bands wherein our innocence enclosed causing the guiltless to be straight reserved and freeing those that death had well deserved but by her envy can be nothing wrought so god send to my foes 
all they have wrought quoth elizabeth prisoner she composed elegant latin verses to the same effect and she wrote the following amusing yet excellent thoughts on the fly-leaf of a copy of paul's epistles quote, august i walk many times into the pleasant fields of the holy scriptures where i pluck up the goodlesome herbs of sentences by pruning eat them by reading chew them by musing and lay them up at length in the high seat of memory by gathering them together that so having tasted their sweetness i may less perceive the bitterness of this miserable life one day it is related she saw through her window a milkmaid in the park singing as she milked she exclaimed that milkmaid's lot is better than mine and her life is merrier sixty soldiers were on guard round her apartments all day and night and well were they needed the infamous gardener sent one basset with twenty-five ruffians in disguise to assassinate her but so strict were the regulations of those who had her in custody basset could get no access to his intended victim an incendiary also kindled a fire directly beneath her room but it was discovered in time to extinguish it the fears and hopes of wily politicians and the zeal of catholic priests were arrayed against her her right to live was denounced from their pulpits as a matter of policy she outwardly conformed to the romish rites yet when questioned as to her belief in transubstantiation the changing of bread and wine into the actual flesh and blood of christ at the catholic communion she made a famous reply in extempore rhymes to which no person could object of course christ was the word that spake it he took the bread and brake it and what his word did make it that i believe and take it while she was thus inditing poetry at woodstock or suffering severe illness or reading and meditating in resignation weariness or bitterness as she paced her room and the adjacent garden a change of feeling was taking place in regard to her after a year of married life queen mary was disappointed in her hope of an heir and therefore looked still more kindly to her sister as her successor and mary's husband philip of spain fearing the claims of the queen of scots hating france desirous to gratify the english people and perhaps with an eye to elizabeth's hand himself as he indeed sought it after the death of the queen who was now in declining health with such motives he urged his wife to invite the captive princess to pass christmas at court in london arrived at hampton palace she was still kept in close ward and repeated attempts were made to induce her to confess some kind of guilt in order that she might not seem to have been imprisoned without just cause on this condition she was promised full liberty but she heroically resisted this disgraceful proposal saying 
I had as lief be in prison with honesty as to be abroad suspected of her majesty. That which I have said I will stand to. After a week's strict confinement, she was startled by a summons at ten o'clock at night to appear before the queen. This was at least the fifth time in her captivity when immediate preparations seemed to be making for her death. She begged her attendants to, quote, pray for her, for she could not tell whether she would ever see them again, end quote, and was conducted by the light of torches to the queen's apartment. Philip, ashamed to confront a woman at whose destruction he and his country had so long aimed, is said to have been concealed behind the tapestry of the room. A long conversation followed in English and Spanish, resulting in a fair understanding between the sisters. Elizabeth received a ring in pledge of amity, and soon after was honoured as next in station to the Queen at the showy festivities of the holidays. She sat at the Queen's table, and was served by her late enemy, Lord Paget. Her brave and amiable suitor, Philibert, Prince of Piedmont, was present, but she avoided his attentions, having perhaps too much preference for Courtney or Dudley, and influenced doubtless by the wishes of her party, as well as by her own ambition to wield an undivided sceptre. With Philibert, who afterwards married a French princess, Margaret of Valois, she would have passed a happier life, but the event would have been a great disaster to England by hindering the free principles of the Reformation. Many other distinguished guests from various courts of Europe were gathered at this time to attend a grand tournament, which was to have taken place the year before in honour of Mary's marriage, but for some reason was delayed. Elizabeth sat beneath the royal canopy to witness the jousting, in which two hundred lances were shivered, the knights of Spain and Flanders entering the lists in their national costumes. At the services in the royal chapel she was dressed in robe of rich white satin, parsimented all over with large pearls. Her appearance is described by the Venetian ambassador in this language, quote, Milady Elizabeth is a lady of great elegance, both of body and mind, though her face may be called pleasing rather than beautiful. She is tall and well-made, her complexion fine, though rather sallow. Her eyes, but above all her hands, which she takes care not to conceal, are of superior beauty. She is proud and dignified in manners. End quote. Great respect was shown her by the greatest dignitaries of the realm at this time. King and Cardinal, when they met her, sank on one knee and kissed her hand. She was very gracious to Philip, and afterwards boasted of him as one of her conquests. She returned to Woodstock. Her servants were allowed to accompany her, and she lived in comparative freedom. Some difficulty indeed arose concerning an astrologer, John Dee, whom she entertained on account of the strange interest which a woman of her education took in his occult science. 
persons in her household were accused of practising by enchantment against the queen's life elizabeth was brought back to hampton palace but philip so befriended her that she was finally suffered to return to her own chosen home hatfield house where she was molested no further than by having one spy under her roof this was sir thomas pope a learned and agreeable man who was recommended by the queen as a person who would look after her comfort a pleasant way of installing him as her guardian Quote, the fetters in which he held her were more like flowery wreaths thrown around her to attach her to a bower of royal pleasance than aught which might remind her of stern restraints End quote and she was well satisfied with the arrangement. Sir Thomas interested her in his plans concerning Trinity College, which he had just founded at Oxford. In return for her goodness, he assisted in the amusements at Hatfield House. One of these scenes is thus described by a chronicler of the time. Quote, at Shrovetide, Sir Thomas Pope made for the Lady Elizabeth, all at his own cost, a grand and rich masking in the great hall at Hatfield, where the pageants were marvellously furnished. There were twelve minstrels antiquely disguised, with forty-six or more gentlemen or ladies, many knights, nobles, and ladies of honour, apparelled in crimson satin, embroidered with wreaths of gold, and garnished with borders of hanging pearl. There was the device of a castle of cloth of gold, set with pomegranates about the battlements, with shields of knights hanging therefrom, and six knights in rich harness tourneyed. At night the cupboard in the hall was of twelve stages, mainly furnished with garnish of gold and silver vessels, and a banquet of seventy dishes, and, after a void of spices and subtleties, with thirty spice-plates, all at the charge of Sir Thomas Pope, and the next day the play of Holofernes. But the Queen, per case, misliked these follies, and so these disguisings ceased. End quote. Another scene is recorded. Quote, she was escorted from Hatfield to Enfield Chase by a retinue of twelve ladies clothed in white satin on ambling palfreys and twenty yeomen in green, all on horseback, that her grace might hunt the hart. At entering the chase or forest, she was met by fifty archers in scarlet boots and yellow caps, armed with gilded bows, one of whom presented her a silver-headed arrow, winged with peacock's feathers. Sir Thomas Pope had the devising of this show. At the close of the sport, her grace was gratified with the privilege of cutting the buck's throat. End quote. When the queen visited her, quote, she adorned her great state chamber for her majesty's reception with a sumptuous suit of tapestry, representing the siege of Antioch. After supper, a play was performed by the choir boys of St. Paul's. When it was over, one of the children sang and was accompanied on the virginals by no meaner musician than the Princess Elizabeth herself. End quote. Such were the merry-makings in the olden time. 
At Hatfield her grace enjoyed again the services of Mrs. Ashley and Parry, who were so convenient to her in her first love affair. Roger Ascombe, too, resumed his place as her instructor, though she was now twenty-three years old, and so versed in the classics that Ascombe confesses he could teach her nothing more, but rather her, quote, modest and maidenly looks taught him, end quote a modesty that her Italian master calls, quote, a marvellous meek stomach, end quote. Her meekness must have undergone a sudden and astonishing change before she became queen. The language of these men is merely the ordinary flattery of those promoted to places near princes, or it shows a finished artfulness in the future mistress of all deception. At this time, the Archduke of Austria was expected at London to propose for her hand. There was no end of the matches arranged for her from her infancy until long after her coronation. The great Gustavus Vasa of Sweden offered his son, but the union was declined. The subject of Philibert's addresses was repeatedly introduced, and always with resulting ill-will. At last, quote, he was seen making love from his window to the fair Duchess of Lorraine, end quote, and this discovery by Elizabeth herself, as well as the final resolution of the Queen, terminated the vexatious suit. The urgent renewal of it immediately after the death of Courtney is thought to argue a private engagement between him and the princess. How far her heart was tried with disappointment, and how far this led to her maiden resolutions, can never be known. End of section 24